Hello, Daniel. Hi, how are you, Jack? I'm very well. I'm very well. How are you doing? We're well. You're in London, right? That's right. Seven or eight hours behind. Okay. And is it still very restrictive there, the social distancing? Yes, to the extent that uh, everyone's advised to stay at home. Nobody's allowed to travel except for essential supply purchases or daily exercise. I imagine you're on the other side of that now. Yeah. I mean, here in Shanghai, basically life is normal, um, except for traveling outside of Shanghai. So the rest of China, most of the rest of China is okay, but to travel to the rest of the world is still a bit complicated. Yes, indeed, and probably will be for some time. Yeah. I'm speaking today to two authors. They are Daniel Bell, Dean of the School of Political Science and Public Administration at Shandong University and Professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. His previous books include The China Model, The Spirit of Cities, Why the Identity of a City Matters in a Global Age, and China's New Confucianism, Politics and Everyday Life in a Changing Society. Daniel, when I moved from Wuhan to uh, yeah. Beijing in 2011, you were my yeah. first interview. And you helped, okay. me, you helped me write my first article. So I, I, I wanted to bring that up to say thank you because everything followed on from there. Right. I'll, I'll Google all this after our interview. And with him is Pei Wang, assistant professor at the China Institute at Fudong University in Shanghai. They are together the authors of the book we'll be discussing, published earlier this year, Just Hierarchy, Why Social Hierarchies Matter in China and the Rest of the World. A pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks for having us. Now, I've not yet read the book, though in preparation for our discussion, I've been rereading the Analects of Confucius, which I'm pretty confident are relevant to the themes of the book itself. Perhaps we can start by talking a little bit about Confucius, the philosopher. Who was this misty figure that listeners will have heard of before, but perhaps don't know very much about? Well, he was basically a failed politician who became a teacher about 2,500 years ago. In those days, it was the spring and autumn period. Um, China was divided into different states. And basically, um, he had a moral vision of politics, and he tried to advise political rulers in his day, uh, first in his own state and then in other states, um, about how to reform their politics. Um, they were not very receptive to his advice, so basically he retired. Unfortunately for us, he became a teacher, and he had um, up to 3,000 students, including 70 uh, who became quite famous themselves, uh, who recorded his thoughts for posterity. He conserved a lot of these rituals from ancient times, but also he did this progressive um, reform on it as well. Yeah, in our book, we also use progressive Confucianism. And it's inspired by the Confucian tradition. It's widely, let's say, adhered to in an implicit sense in China today and perhaps to a lesser extent outside of China. And this is the basic view that we're conservative in the sense that we think there's a lot to be preserved and conserved from tradition that we ought to learn from the past. Um, and we're and we're and we defend progressive values, for example, equality between men and women. Any society that's large and pluralistic and needs certain hierarchies on grounds of efficiency. Some of them are bad, those based on race or sex or caste and maybe class, but others are good. And there's not much uh, literature about morally defensible forms of hierarchy. We think there's a lot to be learned from the past, but properly reinterpreted, those hierarchies need to be made compatible with modern progressive values and also to reform those modern progressive values. 
the concept of hierarchy has become quite a taboo. Would you argue that we are perhaps too focused on equality in the West? And if so, what's wrong with that? Well, we we think that any modern society, let's say any large-scale society, needs hierarchies. That's just inevitable. And attempts to stamp out hierarchies often lead to something much worse. We have examples from the French Revolution, from the Cultural Revolution, attempts to establish societies that are strictly based on the ideal of social equality uh, and material equality, which, which led to disasters. Um, so we need to recognize that any modern society needs forms of hierarchies on grounds of efficiency, for one thing. And then the question is, we need to differentiate between the ones that are morally justified and the ones that are not to help us in order to so that we can more clearly try to minimize the effects of the ones that are bad and try to promote the ones that are desirable. Um, so, so beg your pardon, how do we distinguish between those hierarchies that are morally justified and those that are morally unjustified? Well, in our book, we appeal to the considered moral intuitions of those who share our progressive conservative perspective, those who are both attached to tradition, not just in their own society, but in other societies, and those who basically share many progressive values. There's not much to be said about the ones that are morally undesirable. We just uh, we just oppose racism, sexism, uh, class societies, um, and societies that are highly inegalitarian in terms of distribution of wealth and power. Um, but within that context, how, which forms of social hierarchy are morally justified? And I think it's quite clear that there's no universal answer. It depends on the social relation. And then we and then we look at different social relations. For example, in the family, it's quite clear that if we have rigid hierarchies that are unchanging, they're likely to be harmful for those who, that do not have power. But we argue in our book that if it's shifting hierarchies between intimates, sometimes one has power, sometimes the other has power. And, and if those shifts are done in a spontaneous manner, um, and then they can be morally justified. And we give lots of examples in our book about um, hierarchies between intimates that have this shifting character. Well, one thing that becomes clear when reading the Confucian Analects is that positions of dominance, as you say, are always changing and are nearly always laden with responsibility. So in Confucius as well, every person in every position is judged against their ideal conduct. Um, Daniel, you're a well-known advocate of, of what is termed political meritocracy. Um, what does this mean and how does this apply in modern China at the level of government? Well, political meritocracy is the idea that a political system should aim to select and promote political leaders with superior ability and virtue. And that's an idea that goes way back in Chinese history. Um, Confucius himself uh, defended that ideal. Um, and there's been constant arguments throughout uh, history over how to, how to institutionalize those hierarchies and how to prevent them from being ossified. And uh, now we have this um, imperial examination system that's basically uh, influenced Chi uh, Chinese government since ancient to now to uh, select and promote government officials. And they, I've heard it's also um, influenced the system in, in Britain as well. They've learned from China. The civil, service. civil service system. Yeah. But uh, with this 
um, imperial examination system, they found someone who are very capable of doing things like writing um, documents, dossiers, but they have no virtues. At that time, there are some Confucian scholars to argue that we should have some other kind of examination or or we try to revive this recommendation system a little bit as a supplement as uh, of the imperial examination system so that they can recommend someone with virtue. So the uh, so-called meritoc meritocratic system, uh, politically meritocratic system in China is not just the one thing to do the exam, but also it's some kind of combination of exam, but also recommendation as well. So that the um, governmental officials, the virtue and the capacity for the both be considered. And in our book, we argue that the power that uh, public officials have in this hierarchical system is justified if the officials serve the people and if there's trust between officials and the people. The analysts allude very frequently to what are characteristic values of a gerontocracy, as you know, a society in which the elderly rule or the elderly make decisions or are in positions of power. Would you say that, broadly speaking, you're supportive of a model of society that defers to the elderly? They're saying in China, like, as, like you're get, getting older, but you have to keep learning, continue learning. So um, this is spirit rooted in Chinese tradition. And not only in Asian tradition, but also in modern tra tradition. Confucius, he said, do this self-reflection on myself three times per day to check whether he do progressive, do progress or, or not. So uh, this self-reflection, self-improvement is, um, is a very important virtue for Chinese people, not only for young people, but also for old ones as well. So uh, if we uh, take that, as a presumption, I I do think we uh, in like in Chinese society we do pay more respect to older people. So about the family, um, in our book we differentiate between what we call daytime and nighttime hierarchies. And for for daytime hierarchies, basically it's it's just a figure of speech. Um, in our uh, we argue that. Hierarchies between intimates are justified if they involve shifting roles. And in the case of the Confucian tradition, there's very strong emphasis on age-based hierarchies. And the part, what's interesting about age-based hierarchies is that they're not permanent, right? Somebody who's an older person has authority over a younger person. Well, first of all, certain conditions have to be in place. Um, the older person has to uh, constantly devote themselves to self-improvement and they have to have a functioning mind and increased uh, social uh, intelligence. And we argue that those conditions are not unusual, actually. Um, but eventually, assuming those conditions are met, um, it's, le it's, it's, it's legitimate for the more elderly person to have some authority. But those uh, almost necessarily because of age, those uh, those, those relations will shift. The younger person becomes older and eventually will exercise the same form of authority that they were subject to, so to speak, when they were young. So, so we argue, first of all, we try to specify the conditions under which age-based hierarchies would be justified. And secondly, we, we argue that they are, they do have the shifting, uh, character, which, which allows, which shows that they're not permanent 
and 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 and, and are likely to oppress those who have less power. If I may, I'd like to bring us back for a moment to the, the crisis faced by liberal democracies in the West. I sort of want to understand how what you propose in the book can be achieved or integrated into deeply atomized societies. The overwhelming power of both the state and the market to control the basis on which people participate in civic and democratic institutions has led, particularly since the 2008 crash, to a kind of wholesale rejection on both the political left and the political right of hierarchical structures, often referred to as the self-serving elites. It points to a basic trust that's now missing between ordinary citizens and government, which the mediatization of political engagement in some sense exacerbates. This makes it almost impossible from a Western perspective to imagine social reform based on submission to hierarchy. So again, it's very important to distinguish between the bad forms of hierarchy and the good ones. If there's a kind of populist trend that says that any form of hierarchy is problematic, whether it's one based on race or whether one based on scientific expertise, I mean, that's likely to lead to the sorts of disasters that we have now, especially in the U.S. Um, and I mean, that's in China, too, though, it, to be frank, it is also um, it was a problem in the early stages of the um, of, the, of the epidemic in, in Hubei province where, where doctors who had uh, scientific expertise were muzzled by their political overload, so the, and which, which led to a delayed response. Um, so we're not saying that the problem is distinctive to the West. And, and in terms of international relations, it's so important also to, uh, to realize that stronger states have more responsibilities um, than, than weaker states. And again, to pretend that all states are equal loses sight of that distinction. So whether in, in it's the U.S. or to a certain extent the U.K., I mean, states that have a lot of global influence, they need to uh, realize that they have a lot of global responsibilities as well and, and that what they do uh, ought to benefit weaker powers as well. And to pretend that, um, and to, that, that all states are equal, we think, is also a very damaging um, uh, as well on the global scale. What examples in the book do you give of ways in which hierarchy can improve our relationship to animals and then help us understand man's relationship to machine in the age of artificial intelligence? Well, in the case of humans and animals, we argue that the principle that ought to inform our relation is one of subordination where the animals are subordinate to humans in cases of conflict. I mean, one famous case in a recently in a Cincinnati zoo where a six-year-old child fell into a cage and, and the gorilla threatened the life of that child and the zookeepers had to uh, had to make a decision over what to do and, and eventually they decided to kill the gorilla. I mean, I don't think many of us would object to that, but usually there's no conflict and we have a very strong obligation to refrain from cruelty regardless of the animal, even animals that we strongly dislike. And also we apply to the case of meat eating. And here we're very much inspired by the Confucian idea. I mean, for uh, Confucius himself, for example, eating meat was a very rare, rare. treat. Yeah. And and today, obviously, the way that we bring up meat for human consumption in most cases in, does involve a lot of cruelty. So if we do apply this principle, um, it would eliminate almost m most of the uh, way that animals are brought up for human consumption today. In the case of... Um, uh, humans and machines. Here we think that the Marxist tradition has a lot to offer because 
the Marxist theory of history imagines an ideal of higher communism where advanced machines serve humans and humans are free to develop their creative talents. And, and we think that's an idea worth striving for, but uh, Marx didn't foresee the possibility that advanced machinery could become more powerful uh, than humans. So it's very important to have political control over the development of technology to prevent a uh, relation we, whereby uh, humans are there to serve the interests of machines rather than the other way around. But we also apply the Confucian tradition for, let's call it, short to medium-term issues. For example, in the case of self-driving cars, and here we think the Confucian tradition has a lot to offer when it comes to programming values such as uh, civility and courtesy, uh, even if they may constrain uh, autonomy to a certain extent. Could, could you give an example of how that would apply in the case of uh, self-driving cars? So there, 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 if, we, if we program values, for example, there's, there's, there are thinkers, strangely enough, one of whom is in a uh, strong advocate of the communitarian tradition, Amitai Etzioni, um, who wrote uh, an article with, it was a very influential article with his son, I think, Oren, um, and they argue that uh, self-driving cars should have, like, they call them ethic bots, where each individual driver programs their own ethical preferences, and then, uh, and then the cars should, should, should be led according to those preferences. But what if um, my preference is to uh, drive fast and his preference is to drive slow, uh, then we meet at an intersection and then my car should have priority. I mean, that would lead to uh, a great degree of unfairness. So we argue that it's very important for cars to be, to be programmed with values um, that, uh, that, that strongly emphasize courtesy, and, and civility, um, and that that's and we argue that those values should have priority. But on the other hand, we argue that there's no. It depends a lot on the cultural setting. I mean, if it's in a strongly Buddhist city, like for example um, in Lhasa in Tibet, then it might make sense for Buddhist values that value forms of all forms of life to have priority. So, for example, cars would be programmed slowly so that they kill fewer insects. I mean, in a kind of Confucian setting or in a kind of setting that prioritizes autonomy for humans, uh, you might not have that value programmed in cars. To skip back for a moment, do you see a very clear Confucian almost solution to the uh, wildlife trade in China? I think probably uh, for this question, a Dali's uh, overview uh, outlook is more suited to discuss this question because we... It, uh, from Tali's perspective, we want to live in harmony with nature, and we are part of nature. And for those white animals, Tali is saying that like, white animals is not even part of the society. We should leave them alone. Just don't don't disturb them. And um, and and if there is a market to sell and kill these these animals, it's not only just uh, illegal, but also it's inhumane. We have to leave those white animals. Alone. We should give uh, not only give them freedom, but just don't disturb them. Pay respect to them. And other thinkers in the Confucian tradition do say a lot about to, the need to lead an uh, ecologically sustainable form of farming, for example, um, for food. So by extension, uh, any sort of uh, cruelty towards animals or, or, or form of farming that is not 
sustainable uh, would be strongly criticized from a Confucian perspective as well. But I agree that Taoism arguably has more resources to think about how we should uh, allow or not interfere too much with the lives of wild animals. Well, I think that's a, a, an apt place to end, actually. It would be nice to think that Confucian wisdom could save the world as we know it from the next pandemic if we apply some of its moral principles. Um, I look forward to getting around to reading Just Hierarchy. Thank you. Maybe when you, you'll realize that, uh, that we have many dubious arguments and you could push us further next time. Yes, indeed. As I say, normally I would have had a chance to uh, hold you both to account in person, um, albeit at your favorite restaurant, where I would be more than happy to uh, foot the bill. In any case, where would you say is your corner table? Where is the place that you both frequent most often? We, we have quite a few favorite <laughs> restaurants. Yes. Um, but for purposes of conversation, I guess, there's we have one wine bar called Site on Dashrelu, which means literally University Road close to Fudan University, which is um, uh, a wonderful it's a wine bar. It's a wine bar with very different kinds of uh, quality wines and, and not so expensive. And that's a nice place for this sort of conversation. We'll probably be going there tomorrow, and we don't want to make you jealous, but we hope that you will soon come out of quarantine <laughs> so you can enjoy similar places. Yeah, well, that would be lovely. Daniel, Pei, thank you very much. Okay, take care.